This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our January 2022 edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Happy New Year, Bryce. Happy New Year to you, Justin. Good holidays for the family, smooth travels, all that stuff. I, you know, it was a little bit snowier than ideally. Mm. Usually we don't try and go anywhere, but this year we had family reasons to. And, you know, so there was a little bit of flexibility in the travel uh, as we tried to find holes to get over passes. But yeah, we flexibility. Did, we did all right. It was good. Nice. Well, it is good to see you. Um, and we're going to try something new to kick off the new year. We're bringing you what might be our first annual, it's definitely our first, we don't know if it's annual, um, prediction show. And I think it was Niels Bohr who said, prediction is difficult, especially of the future. Um, So before we get into it, we thought it might be important to do some table setting. Predictions can be many things. One way to look at them is a best guess of what might happen in the future. And another way to use predictions, however, is to start a conversation. To motivate the question, what does it mean if the thing we're predicting were to happen? Uh, Beyond that, Bryce, I know you have some thoughts about some of the psychological pitfalls that forecasters fall into and the attributes of a good forecast. Yeah, I mean, prediction is is hard. I mean, it's the hardest thing that we do. We don't know the future. Mm -hmm. You know, the joke I always make when, because as an economist, you're always asked, like, what's going to happen to the stock market or whatever it is? And I'm like, I have no idea. If I did, I wouldn't be here. I would be very, very rich. So if you're good at prediction, you can make a lot of money. Uh, and so the, the challenge, of course, is that we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And it's really hard to predict the future. And there's this guy named Philip Tetlock who's kind of made this his, studying this his mm-hmm. thing. And you know he's got two books, one that came out like 15, 20 years ago. You know, he basically did 18 years with a like panel of pundits having them predict stuff. Yeah. And it turned out they were terrible at it. And, you know, he, and the original theory he came up with at, at the time was he said, look, it, pundits are terrible. Political pundits are terrible predicting the future. They're basically worse than just random guessing. But those who were better, he called foxes, mm-hmm. right? And then those who were worse were hedgehogs. And a hedgehog basically is like somebody who has a, like a firm, fixed, philosophical view of how the world is supposed to work. Okay. Right? So they always, whatever happens, they filter it through their ideological or philosophical or whatever lens and then they make their predictions based on their model turns out that's a very bad way of trying to predict the future it's kind of like the every if you're a hammer everything's Everything's an approach exactly yeah right so the foxes were the opposite foxes were like well look i'll just this is my theory for this problem and this is my theory for this problem and then we're going to try and learn and then you know that was the first book the second book came out i don't know five six years ago and was based on you know an even larger but slightly different way of doing, basically having people make predictions. In mm-hmm. this case, instead of just having pundits, they recruited people, they put them, allowed them to form teams, um, and they made them make very precise forecasts, probabilistic forecasts, and they kept the horizons shorter. Okay. Right? In the original thing, it was a year was like the earliest thing something would happen. And in the later thing, a year is like as far out as would happen. Because it turns out okay. we're very, very bad at predicting things more than a year in the future. Mm-hmm which probably shouldn't be surprising. But if you do it within a year, people can start to get pretty good. And, and the people that he calls super forecasters, they're very good at it. They're like 30% better than random chance. And then, you know, what are super forecasters? Well, they're basically people who are making these forecasts a lot and they learn. 
they learn, you know, okay, I got that one wrong. They learn from their mistakes. They learn from their yes. mistakes. So they're doing this repeatedly, right? Now, Which a hedgehog would not do. Yeah, well, they, yeah, because right. everything has to fit the ideological or, you know, the whatever my, my worldview is. Yeah, my account you know, of the world. So, oh, if, it, if I was wrong, and you see this all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Pundits are like this constantly. Oh, well, it, it's, it's because of X, Y, or Z, but they never learn that X, Y, or Z are always out there. Right. And therefore, when you're making your predictions, you need to have something that's working through how you're going to try and account for X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. without, and this is the other thing that, I don't know if it's a Tetlock paper, but it's a paper that I remember, which is, you know, experts are actually worse at prediction oftentimes than lay people are. Yeah. And in, not in this hedgehog, fox kind of way, but it's the expert because they know so much, they know all of the points that can go wrong, right? And so they mm-hmm. tend to be more pessimistic about you know some new policy or some change because like, ah, this is going to go wrong, that's going to go wrong. And it turns out that a lot of times things go right. <laughs> but it's, it's easy to fixate on the stuff that goes wrong and not on the stuff that goes right. And that's just something that we see. I think that's a human thing, right? I mean, that's the problem with our media right now. Yeah, is, yeah. You know, we know that negative stories get clicks so negative stories get written we know that negative social media posts get likes and retweets and whatever else you're doing on social media so people do more of that stuff and as a result we lose the bigger picture about what's happening in the world what's going right in the world how the world works we just kind of see the problem 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 so we're going to try and avoid some of those pitfalls i hope but the reality is, is I don't, I don't consider myself a super forecaster. I have not trained <laughs> myself to do this. I usually run the other way when people ask me to do forecasts, but you asked me, so here we are. We'll try and make it work. So we had a short-lived kind of prediction segment on the Incentives and Instincts series for a few months. Um, it was more of a hot takes at the end of an episode sort of thing. Uh, we're going to try to avoid hot takes, but some of these might fall into that category. And that goes back to the notion of the purpose of predictions that I proposed at the beginning some of these are just thought exercises. What does the world look like? What does it mean for us if this thing were to happen? And that's the great way to do predictions, right? As opposed to, you know, oh, I think this is going to happen. Right. And therefore, we should absolutely do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. It's really about building your thought process, building your mind. That That's the value of prediction, right? Is it forces you to kind of work through the model and come, oh, wait, I hadn't thought about that. But, right. Oh, what's... What's that parameter likely to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do I think about that? And so, yeah, hopefully we can keep it in that realm. But we'll try and make some actual like predictions that people can hold us accountable for. And if we keep doing this, maybe we'll become super forecasters over the long term. Yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, I'm not willing to quit my day job yet. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's start with COVID. Uh, you know, we're right at the beginning of the year as we're recording. We are in the middle of the Omicron surge. Uh, kids are back in school. Some kids have gone to remote school in, in some urban areas. People are resuming kind of post-holiday life after mixing to some degree over the holidays. Uh, so, you know, how are you kind of thinking about the future? Before we get into predictions, how are you kind of thinking about the future of COVID right now? Well, I mean, I, I always just kind of look at who's ahead of us on the yeah, curve. Yeah. And, you know, we're Montana it's usually at the end, mm-hmm. right? So we've already seen the European wave. We've seen now the East Coast wave. And so I'm just expecting what's happening there to be coming for us. Here it comes. Uh, which means a huge spike in cases, of, you know, probably a level that we don't even know because I'm guessing a huge proportion of them aren't being reported because 
the relatively good news is that cases, you know, we seem to be seeing less adverse, uh, you know, on a, on a rate basis, right? So as a, as a share of cases, the number of hospitalizations and deaths is down. Now, I mean, a lot of that's because this is, we're seeing more positives amongst vaccinated people. Right. And that's what we expect from the vaccines is that they keep you out of the hospital and they keep you from dying and they're still doing that. Um, but, you know, we're gonna see a spike and that spike will be accompanied by a surge in hospitalizations. How much, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, the only way to deal with COVID is either you get it or you get vaccinated against it. And, you know, there's still a large part of portion of people that are, if you want to use the forest fire metaphor, you know, untouched forest. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, we, all of these ways, it just kind of finds its way into a network, spreads like wildfire through that network until it kind of tamps down and moves on. And we kind of have a little lull and then we come back, uh, you know, at some point, hopefully, and I, I'm, you know, this is where I think my prediction is going to get to, is we'll have either vaccinated or infected almost all of the people. And yeah. then we should get to the, you know, normal pandemic end phase of, yeah, it'll still be around. But, you know, the problem of COVID is our bodies, it's new. You know, our bodies, our, our immune systems didn't recognize it. They don't start fighting it early enough. It allows it to get deep inside of our, particularly our lungs, but other tissues as well. That's what causes the severe problems that we've seen from COVID, particularly death. And, you know, but if you have an immune response to it, it's a less likely to cause those kind of problems. And then we'll kind of move into a phase of, you know, we'll still have something that is COVID. We've already said coronaviruses, so, but it'll just be right. one of the many things that get us sick, hopefully. Yeah, so that's one of the things I think about is like, what's on the other side? And I think even thinking other side is is, is too sort of dichotomous uh, or binary. Um, but at some point, we, we, we're we not going to be wearing masks the rest of our lives. We're not going to be flip-flopping in and out of remote school the rest of our life. Like, we're going to have to kind of come up with a steady state um, way of living. Uh, what do you think? Like, will our kids be out of masks before they get out this summer? Or are they going to stay in them all through this academic year? Oh, that's an interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, so definitely next academic year, I, I think we'll be... I mean, barring some, yeah. you know, the, the, the scary variant, you know, without a scary variant, I think by the end of summer, basically all NPIs are gone, mm-hmm. you know. So Define means, NPIs for the uh, So it's a non-pharmaceutical intervention, right? right? You know, the two things behind that. One is the thing I just talked about, which is either you're going to be vaccinated or you're going to have it. We're going to have reached that threshold of the population that we're going to have that kind of yeah. population level immunity. Uh, but the second thing is, is that if, even if you don't get vaccinated, we have, we are getting pharmaceutical interventions. That, That's right. That's uh, right. You know, we have the new Pfizer drug in particular. Uh, unfortunately, we're a little bit early. You know, I mean, I think that we just, uh, Biden administration just announced that they actually pushed up the big flood of those doses into June. It was supposed to be October. Mm-hmm. They kind of solved one of the distributional problems. You know, so we're going to have 4 million doses by the end of this month, but we're going to have like, I can't remember, but tens of millions by June. Which means that even, yeah, even if you're not vaccinated, you haven't had it, um, you know, we will like if we can diagnose you quickly enough, uh, we will have treatments that will reduce some of the adverse effects. So, then, you know, that really does mean that we can stop quarantine and isolation and masking and do a right. lot of that kind of stuff that's, you know, been a burden uh, on a lot of us uh, and, you know, on, on society. And we'll kind of move past that. Now, the question is, what's, when's the tipping point of that happen? I think that I don't, you know, I think we're starting to see the beginning of the Omicron wave here. Um, it tends to, it appears to take about two months to get through it. 
So that would mean at the earliest, we're talking about spring break probably yeah. for us to be kind of through the wave. And then I don't, you know, it depends on exactly how it leapfrogs across the country. Right. It appears to move pretty quickly. I mean, there's evidence, like it, the, the reporting out of South Africa, where I think the you know, Omicron was first spotted, was, you know, it burned out pretty fast. Burned out pretty fast. Fast moving. And uh, we're seeing some signs of that, you know, in New York City and other places. Although yesterday, I think it was a million cases were yeah, reported. And as you said, yeah. probably underreported. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. But, you know, so, yeah, fast. I mean, I think, I think, you know, maybe in May we'll be like, okay. But my guess is that inertia is too high. The decision point really is kind of the end of the, you know, there's a very natural yeah. decision point. Yeah. But maybe, uh, maybe it happens a little bit sooner. But, you know, to me, it seems like, you know, and we'll see exactly how many cases we get with Omicron and, you know, what we actually can, you know, what if we do a new serial prevalence survey so we can actually measure, you know, what share people have had it and or in are vaccinated so we can actually get a more precise sure. estimate of that to see where we're at. You know, I mean, the advantage, the bright side of Omicron is that it, it, it does appear to be affecting a lot of people, mm-hmm. which means that instead of just kind of yeah, running out of bodies, doing this three waves a year kind of thing, maybe we'll, you know, only have one wave this year or one and a half waves. It does appear to be crowding out uh, Delta, which has more severe symptoms so and outcomes. So that could be a good thing. Let's talk about testing. I mean, that's kind of been it was super salient issue over the holidays. I think people were trying to, you know, Omicron was spiking. People were trying to get tests. Um couldn't find them. Uh, and Biden comes out and says, I'm going to make 500 million tests or something like that. It seems like, I mean, are, are we going to invest in testing and build up infrastructure when it's kind of too late? We're going to miss the wave or should we just forget it? What, what do you think with testing? I mean, I think we've always been a step behind in testing. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think you move, do the, even if it's wasteful, it's better to have it. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, it's not expensive relative relative to the cost of the pandemic. It's sure. it's trivial. So yep. to me, it's it's fine to be behind. It's fine to end up being wasteful, um, just in case, right? Because we don't know. Maybe some a new variant will come along, and we'll we'll want it again. In which case, we don't want to be in the situation where we've been for basically the last well, the last two years of not having sufficient testing capacity to make testing something effective for anybody other than athletes and entertainers yeah right yeah you know they're the ones who are getting tested all the time mm-hmm. uh you know and maybe some political people you know and maybe there's some businesses that are doing it but for the most part you know i have a small stockpile of tests i'm not using them every time i think oh man we should test right it's like oh i, I know that i'm not going to be able to get you know i have this many tests and it's a rationing thing yeah right you know it's okay well we're going to do this or i hope somebody's got actual symptoms we'll test this uh, but you know that's that is not that does not lead to the good outcome that testing could lead to right right within there though there's opportunity for a prediction and that i'll pose the question you know, at, at what point do we stop feeling like we need to test every time we have a COVID-like symptom? Uh, when we no longer have to worry about hospital capacity. that That's my marker. Okay. Right? You know, I mean, we've gone through different waves of COVID, yeah. right? When we first talked about it, that's where it was, flatten mm-hmm. the curve. Flatten right? the curve, save then, the resource. Then it was like, oh, maybe crush the curve. And then it was like, well, maybe what we probably should be talking about is delay 
right? You know, let's give vaccines and or pharmaceutical interventions an opportunity, right? And I think if we if we had perfect forecasting, if you had told people in March of 2020 that a vaccine would be widely available in 12 months and a pharmaceutical uh, intervention that works relatively effectively would be available in 18 months, Mm -hmm. I think our decisions are different, right? Because it's it's there's an end date and we're going to save these many millions of lives by ramping up the dial on the NPIs. And I think we could have got more buy in for that. Mm-hmm. But as is, you know, we didn't. And so here we are now. And it's really like, you know, again, this is the debate is fundamentally what do we owe other people? Right. You yeah. Know, there's you know, there was the protect yourself phase. Right. But then, you know, particularly amongst the vaccinated majority, it's really a question of well, how, what are we doing to protect other people? Right. And I'm kind of with Colorado Governor Polis, who's like, well, if you're vaccinated, good for you. If you're not, well, that's your problem. And, you know, the only thing that kind of tamps down on that are, A, there's some people that actually can't be vaccinated yes. under five years old or immunocompromised or whatever. So there's this population there that are owed something. Now, how much relative to the cost of everyone and everybody else, that's a subject we can debate. But the other big thing is, you know, how much do we want to tax hospital capacity? Yeah. Right? Because that actually does affect everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can't get in to see a doctor when you need to uh, because all the capacity is utilized or broken or whatever it is that we're doing right. to our healthcare capacity. And the excess mortality is yeah. significant and it's not often reported. Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, so we need to, you know, we have to kind of figure out like, you know, at what point are we through waves where, you know, look, there's going to be greater utilization of healthcare capacity for the foreseeable future because there's a backlog of damage from overutilization. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm afraid, and I'm hopefully somebody will start studying this, how much we've actually reduced the capacity of our healthcare system. Yeah, by you know, nurses, doctors, quitting, attacks, quitting. You know, yeah. Just basically saying, this sucks, I don't want to be here yep, anymore. I'm out. Uh, I don't know how much we've damaged our capacity. So, you know, between backlog, lower capacity, and then COVID, right? We've got to figure out how to thread the needle to keep our healthcare capacity where we want it. And so in terms of testing, isolation, all that kind of stuff, it kind of, that, those are my bigger concerns, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like, okay, well, I got to, even though this is a cold for me, right? Which is what it typically is for vaccinated people. And, you know, for 40 plus years of my life, I behave like this when I had a cold, this is a cold that's being prompted by a different virus and therefore I have to take extra precautions. Uh, yeah, you keep an eye on what's gonna have, how much damage you're inflicting on society, but as more and more people have had it and more and more people are vaccinated, the, the risk I'm imposing on others shrinks. Sure. I guess I'll close out our um, COVID segment with uh, a hopeful prediction. And I hope that we re-examine the notion of going to work when sick as being a sign of toughness, that going to school when sick is being a sign of toughness. Um, there are certain situations you have to endure in life, but when those uh, endurance actions uh, have implications for other people's well-being, I think we need to rethink those. So maybe companies, organizations, schools will um, start to reevaluate their sort of norms around those behaviors. And a simple thing that we can all do to help 
prompt that read evaluation is if you are in fact sick, yeah, wear a mask. Right, right. Remind people, let people know that, yeah, you're here, but you're here under circumstances. And if we all saw, wow, there's a bunch of people wearing masks right now, you know, maybe we should- What's happening? Maybe we shouldn't have these people wandering around <laughs> wearing their masks. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, and you know, and look, the public health people have been on this boat for a long time. You know, I remember as a kid, like, oh, perfect attendance. Of course you went to school when you were sick. And then at some point when I probably had small children and I would drop my kids off at daycare <laughs> and see like snotty noses yeah, on the and other side of it. coughs. And I would be like, what are we doing? And then I would go to <laughs> the office and I'd be like, what are we doing? Why are, like, I see people, you're sick. Like, why are you here? Hey folks, coming up on February 12th is Missoula's second edition of Running Up for Air. In 2020, 80 intrepid trail lovers made their way up and down Mount Sentinel to raise awareness for health, clean air, and climate change. There are three, six, and 12-hour options, and all are welcome. To learn more and register, visit runnersedge.com and look for RUFA, that's R-U-F-A, under the Events tab. Proceeds support Climate Smart Missoula's efforts to raise awareness about air quality issues and to ensure everyone has access to clean air. Check it out. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. Like, you know, we, we definitely, and then, you know, some of this is just uh, having sick leave policy. Yeah. That actually is viable. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, like, hopefully, you know, this is the hopeful part of, you know, the, or one of the hopeful parts of the pandemic is hopefully that we've, many of us haven't been sick. Yeah. For two years. Yeah. And it's like, huh, that's kind of nice. It's pretty good. I certainly, you know, I think the average person gets like six to eight colds a year mm-hmm. and each one lasts seven to 10 days. That adds up. That That's adds a lot up. of time. That's a lot of time, right? You know, I mean, you just, I mean, as, as anybody with preschool age kids knows, right? You basically just expect October to March, somebody <laughs> yeah. is sick, right? And, you know, I, I, yeah, if we could shrink that even by a quarter or a half, I mean, that's a huge win. Okay, let's pivot to the economy. You know, we just saw some data that came out, record quits in the month of December, I think it was. You know, we were all this talk about inflation. Is it real? Is it transitory? Wage inflation, um, supply chain disruption, uh, labor force participation, I think is one that you've been talking about in this series a lot. Um, How are you kind of broadly thinking about the economy? And then maybe I can pin you down on some predictions for the year i you know i I think that the economy is still going to be pretty messy for most of the year and to me the biggest thing is labor force participation so it's down now it's down historically down yeah so well i mean is yes relative to prior to the pandemic uh in montana and nationally we're missing about a percent of the population that seems small what a percent of no that's significant but i mean you're talking about you know in Montana, that's tens of thousands of people missing from the labor force. And nationally, mm-hmm. that's millions of people missing from the labor force. We know, do we know where uh, that 1% is distributed? We do. Um, and the concerning one 
is it's disproportionately concentrated amongst people that are over age 55. Hmm. So the concern is that that's, you know, if, you know, amongst the prime age people, you know, kind of 25 to 55, you know, or sometimes it'll go all the way to 59. There's a little bit that's still kind of COVID related and a little bit of it's like, you know, we're flush with cash from I got a spouse that works and we still have some holdovers from stimulus payments or whatever. That'll kind of take itself. Yeah, I mean, that should be itself. fading, those yeah. effects. But to the extent that people have basically said, well, I'm retired now. Yeah, pulling future forward with asset prices Asset too. prices yeah. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, I expect it will come, people will come back because usually there's reason, you know, people retire and come back to work all the time. Yeah. But, you know, will we have, will we suffer kind of a persistent half or a third of a percentage point loss? If we do, that's, that's a real issue. So that's, you know, that's the first thing that I've been tracking, uh, you know, just waiting to see are people every month, are people coming back, are people coming back, you know, is it going, are we, are we back to the labor force participation rate that we saw before? The second thing, you know, is this kind of, people are calling it the great resignation. It's really the great reshuffling. Yeah. Because better. quits are up, but so is hired. Right. Right. Uh, and it's really interesting paper, working paper came out just this week, um, which basically kind of, I don't remember exactly how they did it, but they basically found that um, there's about 10% of workers who are in a job simply because they don't know that there's a better job available, hmm. right? And, you know, one of the things that we think maybe the pandemic has done and why we're seeing the great reshuffling is it's so prevalent now that there's opportunity out there that a lot of people in these jobs that used to be like, oh, man, there's just nothing better are jumping to a better job. Right. And, you know, this, the, and the scary thing that this paper kind of found was that, you know, actually it's more than 10%, you didn't know those jobs, is that 10% of jobs are unviable if people move, right? They don't pay a high enough wage okay. to be able to- They can't refill them, essentially. You know, yeah. You know, there's, there's the not, employer's gotten away with a good deal for too long. For a long time. And, and that's what, you know, and, and that's why if we look at inflation adjusted wages, it's actually at the bottom. Yeah. People in the bottom quartile have seen wages rise faster than inflation since the start yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, we see that in food uh, service, right? Like McDonald's hiring at $17 an right. hour. I mean, this is, this is revolutionary in that category of jobs. And at least as of November, it was still true that at, in the bottom quartile, even though inflation is now at 6% or something like that, mm -hmm. um, their wage increases are still cumulatively higher than inflation. In the next quartile, they're right about inflation and above the median inflation is a problem because it's outstripping your wage increase. Although some of that may be people accepting lower wages in exchange for flexibility and work from home. Okay. Um, you know, so there's like several things kind of layered in there, but like, you know, that's kind of where we're at in the labor market is at the lower end, the question is, and that's where the labor force participation thesis comes in. They've kind of discovered, A, there's better opportunity out there, and B, there's not enough workers, right? You know, and we're at the tail end. There's always, you know, somebody quits up the ladder, somebody climbs, somebody climbs, somebody climbs. So where where do we feel the loss of the people? It's at the bottom of the ladder, yeah, right? And so that's where they have more power and that's where they're seeing the great reshuffling really taking place. As you move up the ladder, you know, the issue really is the work from home 
you know, and how are people renegotiating? Right. right. Uh, you what know. relationship do they want to have with work and on what terms? And they're going to go to the employer that will provide that. And people, you know, their survey came out again this week, um, argue, you know, which basically asked people, what are you willing to pay for two to three days at home? Yeah. And I think the median amongst people who are more likely to be doing this is like 8%. Hmm. Um, but it varies depending on your sure. industry and all these kinds of things. And, you know, and, but, there's a third that it's negative, right? Oh, they you want have, to go back. I want to be at work, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, or zero. Uh, you know, I'm basically neutral on the thing. I don't care one way or the other. So if you're coming to me saying, hey, we're going to cut your wages because people are working from home, you know, there's a, there's a margin of people that are going to be like, well, I'm going to look for a different job. One that's not going to cut my pay because of people running to, you know. So there's going to be mm -hmm. a, you know, a reshuffling as people find matches in terms of, well, A, as firms figure out the value, like how much do I actually need people to work from home for me to succeed as a firm? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, or to, you know, or to work in the office for me to succeed as a firm or, you know, or how much better can I be because I'm tapping into this larger, you know, that there's a whole shuffling that's going to happen there. And that's the interesting thing at that in the work from home side of the labor market. So there's two very interesting stories coming into 2022 that we'll get some resolution on, but it's unclear how much. Yeah, I, I predict a uh, a lot of dissertations will be written about this period of time. <laughs> that's a that's a really bold prediction. Uh, yes. Uh, well, you know, there's. I mean, given the rate at which we create PhD students, uh, yeah, uh, you know, they got to write about something, and so like, well, hey, look, there's a lot of. Yeah, uh, I'm living through it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's try to get in our remaining time. Let's try to hit a couple other areas. Yeah, I think a lot about higher education. Higher education, in some ways, you know, we can paint a um, an optimistic picture in the sense that pandemic has forced institutions to move and innovate quickly. We've seen some of that. We've lived through it, um, and we've changed our relationship to the student experience. And I, I think that, in many ways, could be positive. How are you thinking about? You know, we've talked about higher education trends. How are you thinking about the future of higher education, and, and what are, what are the signals that you're looking at in the next year? So short run predictions in higher ed. I mean, obviously the first one is just goes back to the COVID prediction, which is that uh, higher ed is going to get back to normal. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I feel like it's overreacting to Omicron. You know, they 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 were on the COVID bandwagon early in March 2020, uh, and that was probably the appropriate thing to do then. But particularly at these universities where it's 99 percent of people are vaccinated. We know that, I mean, I actually think we had zero people that were in their 20s die from COVID recently in a day, first mm -hmm. time. But, you know, there's just not, there's not the risk in this population. And the question we have to keep asking is, why are, who are we asking to bear the price uh, in order to benefit who other, which of the other people? And we have put a huge amount of the burden on kids, yeah, uh, yeah. school and kids, and their futures. It and, has an enduring and, effect, and you know, and it has a terrible effect. You know, I mean, you know, we we're supposed to be talking about universities. Look, people use the pandemic to study online learning. It does not work as well as in-person mm -hmm. learning. Uh, you know, so to the extent that you push people online, you are taking away. You know, in fact, I just saw a bunch of people posting that, you know, one of my friends on Twitter, who's a professor, basically is like, did anybody else have this experience that they had to completely rejigger their upper division class because the kids didn't come in with the prerequisite knowledge that I assumed? Yeah. And she just got a ton of, yep, 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 totally had to redo it. 
you know, and you know, that's the learning, that's real learning loss, mm-hmm. right? And we know that employers pay for learning, right? You know, this, this notion that college is a waste or doesn't do anything, we have very solid studies that show what you learn in college matters in terms of, you know, what people are willing to pay you long term. And so, you know, it's this is a real problem. We need to get back to normal social college, right? Yeah, yeah guess we have to be aware of the cost of that socially, but hopefully by at least by the fall, we will be back to where we can promise kids something that is, you know, maybe it's improved. We've learned the good stuff, but we've also learned what we gave up and how important a lot of that stuff was. We can't just take it for granted. We have to do it. So in terms of, you know, what am I predicting for college? It's a return to normalcy and you know, college is still valuable. Absolutely. Um, uh, people are still going to come. And at least in the short run, I think we should expect that people will show up. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears a little bit on my higher ed prediction. I've been thinking a lot about collegiate athletics. I kind of see declining power and significance of the NCAA. Uh, if you pay attention to college football at all, uh, I don't a ton, but like these blowouts over the weekend, just sort of the it's just become really boring and repetitive. It's like Alabama and some other SEC team every year. Um, and now we have this rise of athletes, student athletes ability to make money um, through various channels. One channel that's actually happening already is this name image and likeness. So I guess uh, my prediction is these forces coalesce to sort of diminish the prominence of athletics in the brand building ability of an institution. Hmm. We'll see. I just think it becomes maybe the power of brand becomes more concentrated amongst a few, but I I just feel like these forces kind of dilute the ability of, of higher education institutions to build their brand around football and basketball. That's interesting. Uh, You know, uh, you had J.K. Simmons on recently and you talked about this. And one of the things that he brought up, which was, I thought, insightful, which is that college sports predate professional sports. And I mean, look, there's this notion that college sports are, you know, and there's this whole entertainment thing. And there's, you know, look, you get to come and play, keep playing all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But from a college's perspective, the reason why sports are important, in my opinion, is they're a, re- a way of recentering your college identity. This makes it more, it goes back to that salient identity thing that we talked about yeah. in one of our recent episodes, but not in politics, but in terms of the university, right? It's why Montana wants to beat Montana State. It's because that's the week that everybody in those communities is paying attention. Yeah. And now if we win, we recenter the identity of UM and now we get people to volunteer and to donate and you know to be more engaged in because you know the way I actually think of universities is yeah, there's the university that's happening right now. But good universities are communities. Yeah. Right? They're long-term communities. That's why you get alumni running around with sweatshirts and they talk about that's where they went to school. It's part of who they are. And there's value in that. And so I, I don't care one way or another. I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with the NCAA. I like college sports because I grew up watching them. Sure. Uh, and I still watch them today. Um, but like, you know, I care about watching a sport that's at a high level, right? A higher level than I can watch otherwise. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if I'm watching college basketball over the NBA, I don't care if it's at the highest level. Yeah. Right. If I cared about watching basketball, I would only watch the NBA. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the highest level of basketball. And if you watch the NBA for a while, and then you watch college basketball, you, you go, ooh, 
Yeah, it's different. Oh, man, they're missing some open shots here and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Same with football, right? And so, you know, I don't think, I mean, I think a lot of where we've imbued the industry of college football isn't necessary for what the colleges yeah. actually need, right? The athletic departments need it because that's their business model, mm -hmm. right? But in terms of would I still watch the Grizz if they were putting on a decent product out there, even if it wasn't, you know, imbued with television and all that kind of stuff, I probably would still be going. Sure. Right. And so, you know, I think it will, I think it will shift and yeah, the transfer portal and, you know, yeah, that's a big I, part of it too. Uh, and the, you know, making money and all these kind of stuffs will, it's, it definitely is gonna, you know, these are foundational changes. If you go back and you say, well, why is it that the colleges have these sports in the first place? And what does it do for the community? I still think there's value in it. And I think we'll figure out a way to have that value and continue to have, you know, some form of college athletics, even though it, it may be different than what we have today. The pundits speak right now is Democrats are going to get crushed in the midterms. Historically, we know that the out party um, tends to perform well in the midterms, particularly the first midterm elections after a presidential election for, you know, a new president that is not, a, not an incumbent re-election. So what do we think? Democrats going to get creamed or, uh, you know, what, where do you think this thing shakes out? Well, um, if we want to put some numbers on the predictions, right? So I actually looked this up. So as of right now, the prediction markets uh, and the betters roughly put the Democrats' chances of keeping both House and Senate at one and eight. Hmm. And the Republicans that retaining control of both at roughly two and three. Okay. Um, so, and then, you know, the difference between, you know, the remaining 20 some percent is some combination of. Yeah, flips. some split. And as of right now, those don't strike me as horribly inaccurate predictions. Um, I think the big thing is, you know, right now is what's going to happen with inflation. If inflation comes down and the pandemic is under control and people are feeling good again then obviously the democrats have a better message to sell you know because you go back to last july when we were yay the pandemic yeah, it was over. an optimistic time right you know joe gallup, biden was you know uh, franklin roosevelt back then you know gallup has this thing called the thriving index it reached the highest that it ever reached i remember you mentioned uh, that on the pod and you know now i don't know exactly where it's at but you know i'm guessing it's down you know the, the economic misery index which is the sum of the inflation rate and the unemployment rate is elevated. And the unemployment rate is rock bottom. That's a great right? term for a metric, the misery, uh, the misery index. index, right? You know, and <laughs> one I just saw today that uh, the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis put out was the business misery index, right? Jeez. Which is the, you know, uh, I think it's quits or job turnover and something else. But It really is the dismal and, science. And both of those are, you know, it's, it's elevated just like the consumer misery index yeah. is. And so if we can see some, you know, positive movement on the misery indexes, indices, you know, by the summertime, then, okay, great. Now you got a story to tell, right? We've passed this stuff. This is what you asked us to do. Look, this is what we still want to do. But if people are miserable, then yeah, the Democrats are going to get creamed. And right now, coalitions are fracturing all over the place, yeah. right? I mean, you know, COVID is fracturing all the coalitions, right? Because you have on the left, you've got the 
people who still want to lock down everything who I think are kind of hedgehoggy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, oh, well, we saw this, we did this before, and this is what we're supposed to do no matter what. And it's like, then there's the kind of what I'll call the foxy version, which is like, oh, conditions have changed. And yeah, we recognize that there's these risks, but- Our knowledge has changed, you know, the, the disease has changed, all but, these things. But I'm seeing lots of intra-coalition yeah. fighting on that. And then on the right, you've got, you know, more than half of Republicans are vaccinated. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, yes, the majority of the unvaccinated are Republicans, but a majority of Republicans are vaccinated, mm-hmm. right? And, and then you look at how it distributes across age. And age and, yeah. you know, and, you know, and, and then you also have, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of people are tired of a lot of the cultural war stuff. And, yeah. you know, so we'll see. I think it, there's a real possibility that in a better conditions than now, then, you know, there's actually some real opportunity to reshuffle some of the coalitions. Um, and, you know, who knows what that means in terms of D's and R's, but in terms of what legislation gets passed and what priorities are, I'll be interested to see where we are. I don't have a prediction, but I think there's, I think there's an elevated chance that we'll see changes to what we think of as political coalitions. Okay, I like that prediction. And, and I, I, it, both because it is a prediction, but it's also one that I think could lead to some meaningful change in, in how things are run, a shaking up of coalitions. So let's stick with that. Okay, we're going to close out this episode with you know, two things that I, I want from each of us. One is, you know, what, is there a trend out there that's kind of keeping you up at night? And then, you know, a recommendation for, for, for folks to kick off the year with some, some way to enrich themselves. So, Bryce, is there a trend that's kind of keeping you up at night? I mean, the trend that's kept me up at night uh, for many years uh, is all this kind of related stuff about effective polarization yeah. and what it's doing to, you know, you know, the hardening of identity around politics. And again, what I'm hopeful and what this potential of a reshuffling of political coalitions means is it means that some people have to reevaluate their identity. And hopefully that's a light bulb moment of, wait a second, these people I used to listen to all the time, I now think they're crazy, right? Uh, what, maybe I should not put, invest so much of me yeah. in my political identity and so much of how I process what happens in the world through that filter, mm-hmm. right? So hopefully this is, you know, and this is why I tend to support things like, you know, proportional representation and, you know, ranked choice voting is because it allows me to become less tied to a group, a D or an R. Yeah. And so I don't have to think of things as a team. I can think of things as just there's things, right? And hopefully, you know, that allows me to recenter my identity around things that are, are important, like family and community and, you know, other thing, you know, whatever, occupation, lots of other things that we can use to, you know, make our identity, you know, or define our identity other than politics. And so the fact that we are not yet there, that's the that's the trend that keeps me up at night. Yeah. How do we I get am there? hopeful that this year is a turning point in allowing us to reevaluate some of that. And hopefully we can, you know, arrest some of that momentum. Let's hope so. A trend that um, is kind of keeping me up at night to some degree. I mean, it's not really keeping me up at night, but, but, you know, I think about it a lot. I saw this statistic the other day that 60% of undergraduate college students are now female. And in one sense, that's a wonderful thing, the advancement of women in the economy and higher education, the job market, it's, it's wonderful. But we actually need it to be around 50-50. It, what is happening in higher education where men are turning away from it? We don't really know yet. There's some speculation, but for some combination of reasons, higher ed is leaving 
a lot of our young men behind. And all of the stuff we've talked about on this series and the stuff I've looked at about future of work suggests that the, the, the jobs, the good jobs of tomorrow are jobs that are going to need more education, not less. Uh, it, it might That education might look different than the conventional four-year degree in some ways, but as you said just a few moments ago, the four-year degree is still worth a lot in a career. And so that, that, that trend concerns me. And so I'll be thinking about ways to, you know, I don't want to say promote men in higher education. That's not what I want to go on the record saying, but we need to be thoughtful about it because it needs to be a resource that is consumed with equal access for all. Well, particularly, you know, the question is, look, if it's, if men are better off not going to college, then fine. Hmm. Then we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But if it's men are being turned off to college by something that we're doing at college, even though it's still extremely valuable for right. them, then it's a problem and we should address it. And just because it's men should not make us afraid to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some men who shouldn't go to college, right? So we actually have studies that if you're a highly mechanical, whatever, blah, 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 you frequently do better just taking, going off and taking advantage of those skills. There's a high return to those skills in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You don't need a college education to fully take advantage of them. Great. But there's a lot of men who are at the margins who would probably be better off as a marginal college student than as a marginal non-college student. Uh, and if there is something that we are doing to turn men off to college, we need to understand what that is and we need to rectify it because all we're doing is pushing them onto a path of less opportunity. And that's never a good thing. Yeah. Well put. Okay. What's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation, uh, given that we are focused primarily on a bunch of Montana people, um, is for people to connect with Montana sources of media, entertainment, enrichment. So I'm on the advisory board at the Mansfield Center. Check out the Mansfield Center programming. Uh, you know, we look to, we're planning a bunch of stuff for the coming year. Yeah, Mansfield um, brings in amazing guests. Amazing guests. And a lot of us online now. You don't even have yeah. to get out of your house. Um, just register, watch the Zoom link. You know, I literally listened to one recently where I just had it on my ear pods and I was wandering around. I wasn't even watching the Zoom, mm-hmm. um, doing other stuff. But, you know, I mean, if they haven't listened to Fireline, they should listen to Fireline. You know, uh, other stuff on Montana, the podcasts on Montana Public Radio are outstanding. We have a bunch of nonprofit media. Uh, you know, yep. the Montana Free Press, uh, you know, the, the Kaiser Health Network has two Montana reporters. There's a lot of people who are trying to help you understand your state better. Seek them out. Uh, try and, you know, again, reduce that national filter of all, all things that are happening. Yeah. Find the local filter that will help you understand and hopefully reconnect and recenter your, your identity as a Montanan. Because the thing I tell people is, the success of other people in Montana is much more correlated with your success than what's happening anywhere else in the world. Yeah. So to the extent that you need to understand what's going on in Montana, address what's going on and connect with people in Montana, those are my recommendations. There's a large list of things to choose from. Uh, you know, it's one of the great advantages of these types of media uh, is that, you know, there's a lot of people doing cool stuff. Uh, what is awesome things? Cool in, people doing awesome, awesome things. Stuff. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, in and around Montana, check them out. Uh, you know, that's my recommendation. Awesome. Well, my recommendation is is similar in its spirit. Uh, uh, for years, I've sort of dipped in and out of Tyler Cowen's work. He's an economist at George Mason University. Uh, he's got a great daily blog. He's done it for years called Marginal Revolution. He's one of the few bloggers that posts something every day, sometimes more than once a day. He's got a podcast, Conversations with Tyler. I think it's excellent. And over the holidays, I listened to an episode he did back in September with an Oxford philosopher named... Amiya Srinivasan. 
And she, uh, well, Tyler describes her as a utopian feminist, and she did not necessarily bump at that description. But I highly recommend this episode, not necessarily because of the content, but because these two people, it seemed like they fundamentally view the nature of the world and the nature of people differently. And they came at each other at the level of the ideas and, and often had trouble sort of settling on the framing of questions and the assumptions embedded within those questions. And they engaged fiercely, but in a way that was respectful. And I think both of them ended up learning. And as a result, and really smart people, when they learn in a conversation, you can't help but learn yourself. And it just sort of reiterated my passion, not only for this project, but for trying to promote productive discourse. And um, that's not just to the, to the media you listen to, but do it in your own life. Engage in ideas with people and try to learn from other people and their perspectives and experiences. So as we close, Bryce, this was fun. Thank you and uh, happy 2022. I do hope that um, you know these predictions were fun to do and uh, maybe some of them are useful. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> In a year, we'll, we'll, we can check back. That's right. That. On the second annual 2023. <laughs> the second, right. there we go. Okay. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.